Late 19th century New York City was not the city we know and love today. In 1895, when Theodore Roosevelt began his stint as police commissioner, corruption was rampant, and the city was teeming with prostitutes and gambling joints. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're looking back on those sin-loving days in New York City with the author of a new book called Island of Vice. Police officers ruled the streets, and a lot of them were indeed bullies. Roosevelt stood up to them. Here's this five foot nine inch Harvard-educated guy who's just demanding respect. But first this morning, even in an ever-changing city like New York, opportunity exists to walk the same floorboards as those who came before us. The Historic House Trust of New York City is a nonprofit organization that works with the Parks Department to protect and promote historic houses in all five boroughs. Frank Vagnone is the group's executive director. He joins me this morning to talk about the Historic House Trust and some of the 19th century properties in their collection. Frank, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. For those not familiar with it, what is the Historic House Trust? Well, the Historic House Trust was started by the city of New York, 1989. And what they did is they realized that their historic properties, right now we have 23 of them, and they all rest in park property. The historic properties were so valuable and needed such specific care that they organized a public-private nonprofit, which is the Historic House Trust for the city of New York. So we work with the city and we work with the smaller nonprofits who make manage and run those individual historic houses. So we're this kind of middleman public-private partnership that uh, is really unique to New York. How far back do some of these properties date? Oh, well, we have um, actually the... um, uh, the reason why I hesitate is that it's, it's arguably the uh, the oldest uh, dwelling that's still existing, and that's um, Wyckoff Cottage out in the flatlands of, of Brooklyn. And then there's a little bit of argument with another one of our houses, which is the Bound House in Flushing. So somewhere between those two, we have um, the earliest existing Dutch um, colonial dwelling. So how far do they date back? Is that the early 1700s? 1660s. 1660s, yeah. okay. Yeah. Notice how vague I am because, you know, the arguments will be too much. (laughs) In a city like New York that's constantly evolving, how is it that these structures are still standing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You're really asking a philosophic question, and that's where I think Historic House Museums really shine. By comparison to other cultural institutions, they're really small. Many people would say fairly insignificant. But if you really understand the history of New York and what it means to be a New Yorker, these houses probably in the most clear, concise way kind of crystallize what it was like to dwell, to inhabit New York City. And the reason why they still exist is because, which is usually the case, someone, member of the family, member of the community, saw a house that was really falling apart, and there's this really kind of emotional tug, um, not really understanding exactly why, but that it is a valuable component to understanding this kind of thread of why I'm here and why it's important that I understand that New York City is here. So I think somewhere in between there, uh, people are just pulled into the notion of preserving. And I, I think that really important at this point is to understand that we're preserving domestic dwellings. These are houses 
I have a house. You have a house. Um, so we know what it's like to wake up, go to the bathroom, get breakfast, take a shower. It's not that difficult to understand what it was like to live um, in a dwelling. So there's something very tangible about a historic house museum. Why is it, from your perspective, important to tell this history to future generations? It's fascinating because as eras change, as social um, issues change, um, the reasons for what were originally considered shrines, the reason for preserving shrines came out of issues about immigration, issues about bigotry, issues about defining what it was to be an American. And depending upon the era that that site or historic house was saved, they probably all have different real fundamental reasons for being saved. If I'm, if I'm able to kind of pull away from those individual issues about why each house was saved, it is valuable as a kind of high-level view of why New York City exists and has the importance worldwide that it does. The only way that you can really understand that is to have something tangible to attach those ideas to. Um, so I don't necessarily think that this house is important because this person slept there. I do, however, think that that house is important because of its kind of social construct within the larger society, and that somehow can be related to me in my present-day world. Of the 23 sites in your collection, are many specific to the 19th century? So you're saying the 1800s? Yeah. Has, uh -huh. um, well, you know, most of them are that time period. Uh, we have a lot of, as I said, the Dutch cottages in the earlier periods. You know, some of them that are really interesting, and it goes back to your question of why are these important to save. I'll just mention one, and one is Lewis Latimer's house, um, which is in Flushing. Um, and that house was the home of Lewis Latimer, who's an African-American um, inventor, and uh, he was the child of freed slaves. And, and what's important about that historic house isn't necessarily the architecture, the space of that house. It's the legacy of Lewis Latimer. And so what you'll see in that time period are a lot of interesting stories about the people who um, kind of inhabited those houses. So the, the houses themselves are important for the reasons we just discussed. But if you, you really pushed me, I would say the, the real reason to save these is the legacy. Latimer also founded the Unitarian Universalist Church in Flushing, right? It's true. It's interesting. Um, the long list of Latimer inventions. You know, I joke with people about um, the Willy Wonka movie um, and, and the hat. I don't know, the original Willy Wonka movie, and when he took off the hat, that hat stand is, is a Lewis Latimer invention. It's actually patented. One of the sites in your collection is the Merchant's House Museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. That is one of my favorite places to visit. I've been back there many, many times visiting Gertrude, Gertrude yeah. Treadwell, yeah. who was the daughter of Seabury Treadwell, mm -hmm. the merchant who owned that home. Now, this is really well, you one... You your history really well. You know. <laughs> I've been there many times. I love it. This is one-stop shopping yeah. for all things 19th century. It's true. And what's unique about Merchant's House, and when you find historic houses like this, it makes them even more valuable. And that is that the collection inside of the house can really be tied directly. The provenance of all of the objects, you know, all the hard stuff, it can be tied to the family itself. And, and that's a really unique experience to walk into the Merchant's House and turn to the left and go into the two parlors. And you really, really get a sense of what it was like to live and inhabit 
that particular dwelling. And of course, that dwelling was was really of a kind of higher quality social standing, and you get that sense. Another character from the 19th century who called New York City home, Staten Island to be exact, was Alice Austin. Mm-hmm. She was a well-known photographer in her day. Yeah, absolutely. And her life is really interesting because there's been this dialogue between historic interpretation, as we were just talking about, um, what's the ideal and what's real. And it really um, makes it difficult for instance, when you have her house as a historic house museum, Alice's uh, life partner, Gertrude, lived there for around 50 years with her. Um, But that story really hasn't been told because there's really not a, a, a clear consensus as to the type of relationship that they had. And the Historic House Trust last summer put together an entire journal, which was about this notion of Boston marriages, um, Alice Austin's life. We recreated some of her photographs, which had never really been looked at in terms of sexual orientation. Um, And these were these avant-garde parties where she had, you know, all kinds of alternative lifestyles in one photograph. And we actually when in New York City and we got people who fit that profile and we reenacted those photographs and they're fabulous. Um, so it's it's a really incredible house. Um, not only does it have one of the most incredible views of Manhattan and Brooklyn that I've ever seen, um, the story is so relevant and so significant um, to today. I mean, certainly with uh, the marriage equality um, vote um, last year, you know, there's all kinds of things that take it to today as relevant as you could possibly be. How is the preservation movement doing financially? Where do you come up with the money to do these restorations? Right. Um, I'll speak generally, and then I'll speak specifically. Generally, preservation is a hard sell. Um, and a lot of things are changing. Um, the The generation that originally started preservation, of course, is gone, but then their children and their grandchildren are starting to leave us as well. And so the funding for preservation, bricks and mortar, is dwindling, and funders are really asking for what are those stories? What's the relevancy? And so that's why I keep answering um, that to you. And so that's what people are interested in. And it's virtually impossible to say I need to redo the shutters at one of the houses and get them repainted and redoweled. But if you talk about that house and its educational programming and its narrative and why it's important, then those shutters become part of a larger context. And and so it is pretty interesting. Specifically, New York City, um, as I said, all of the houses are owned by the city of New York. And so what HHT does is with the houses, we go to all the city council members and we have what we call our wish list. And that is, you know, what needs to be fixed. And it's a kind of strategic framing of why it's important for preservation. You know, we have over um, 800,000 people visiting all 23 of these houses. We've got close to 400,000 New York City school kids coming to these houses. So these are not kind of tiny, um, useless structures where a lot of money is being poured into them. I think probably if you looked at how much money goes into restoring these houses and maintaining them, as compared to the number of people that go through them, I think what you'd see is it's, a, it's an incredible bargain. Are all of these sites historic landmarks, so they can't be touched, demolished, ever? Almost all of them are, uh, I think the term is like triple landmarked or something. You know, it could be federally, state, and local uh, landmarked. Yeah, I mean, I think we're very lucky. That's one of the... One of the um, activities that HHT does in the city, and that is to make sure that these properties are, are, are landmarked and safe. 
And I hope to see everyone at one of the houses and email me or call me and I'll show up. Frank, thanks so much for your time. Sure, thanks. Frank Van Yone is the executive director of the Historic House Trust of New York City. They're online at historichousetrust.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. Visiting a historic property is one route you can take to explore New York City's past. Reading a book is another. In his latest work, author Richard Zacks takes us back to the 1890s, when the city was the nation's vice capital, with thousands of prostitutes and countless all-night gambling halls. The book is called Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's doomed quest to clean up sin-loving New York. Richard is with us now on the phone. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. What inspired you to write this book? Basically, I was looking into Vice in the 1890s, and I stumbled on Roosevelt being police commissioner, which I vaguely remembered knowing. And um, the standard story was that Roosevelt had basically come in and clean up New York, and he had uh, wiped out corruption in the police department. He had instituted pistol shooting and then taken midnight rambles and all these good things. And uh, uh, the trouble was, the more I looked into it, the more the story really didn't hold up. And I thought the true story was a lot more interesting about Roosevelt with all this do-gooder, reformist instinct uh, and impulses running into the most corrupt, lewd city in the United States and having uh, incredible difficulties trying to, uh, trying to clean it up. Teddy Roosevelt, T.R., as you refer to him in the book, was born in New York City, but he'd been away for a long while before he was appointed police commissioner. How is it that he became the city's highest-ranking police official? Well, he had spent the previous six years on the Civil Service Commission uh, down in Washington, D.C., and uh, he was uh, pretty loud in the reform movement and uh, popular in certain circles, so they were uh, when the Reform uh, Party uh, basically was able to uh, elect Mayor Strong, uh, they were hoping that there'd be a job for Roosevelt. And the first job, actually, they offered him was sanitation commissioner. And uh, he passed on that. And then later they offered him uh, police commissioner. And he was part of a board of four police commissioners, but there was a kind of tacit agreement that he'd be elected president of the board. How soon after taking on the role of police commissioner did Roosevelt begin his vice crackdown? Just about day one. I mean, he 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 basically admitted that he had no uh, background in law enforcement, but he had you know many overriding reform principles, and uh, he wanted to enforce all the laws. He wanted to enforce all the rules of behavior for the police department. I mean, I'm not saying on day one he went out there and tried to rouse prostitutes and break into gambling dens, but he he wanted to set a tone right from the beginning that this reform police board was going to be different from any board that had come before, and they were going to clean up the city and especially clean up the police force. And it was, I mean, it was striking. People had said those words, but Roosevelt really intended to do it. You talk in the book about how Roosevelt, despite working long daylight hours, would patrol the streets at night, checking on police officers to see who was neglecting their duty. And he didn't do that alone. He did that with his friend, journalist Jacob Reese. How did those nights go for them? It's kind of interesting. Um, Roosevelt, uh, you know, it's kind of assumed these walks have assumed uh, a kind of legendary status in, in New York City uh, lore. And uh, Roosevelt couldn't have chosen a better guide than Jacob Reese. I mean, Reese had written How the Other Half Lives and really knew 
the, the all all the streets of New York. I mean, he 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 was amazing. And uh, the irony is that Roosevelt, even though being born here, really didn't know his own uh, home city all that well. He needed a guide. And uh, the two of them went out at midnight. They left the Union League Club. Uh, they were moderately disguised. Roosevelt had a floppy hat and a long coat. And um, uh, they they wandered the streets. But some people think that, that they were out there looking for uh, vice or looking uh, – uh, basically, they were looking to see if cops were doing their duty, if they were walking their beat, if they were sleeping instead, if they were talking too long to people on the street. And uh, Roosevelt wound up uh, being a taskmaster. He he wound up just kind of lurking in the shadows and catching. He he actually pulled out a stopwatch to see how long cops would uh, chat with uh, civilians instead of walking along their beats. In the book, you also talk about how difficult it was to be a cop in 1890s New York. It was different than it was today. They had more responsibility. How did the rank and file feel about Roosevelt doing this? They didn't feel too good about it. You know, and that's, again, part of the whitewash. I mean, now, you know, people claim to be so proud that Roosevelt was police commissioner, you know, after he became president. But um, at the time, there was deep resentment, and especially that the force was about two-thirds uh, Irish or uh, Irish-born or, or first-generation Irish-American, and, and it almost was like a clan back then. And uh, there was just ways of doing things that they had done for a long time, and, and frankly, the force was, was very corrupt. I mean, they took bribes to look the other way at brothels and at gambling joints, and they even took bribes from boot blacks over what corner they could be on, and that's the way it had always been done. And here comes Roosevelt in with absolutely fearless, going to just break it up and, uh, and stop it and change it. An interesting fact in your book is that police officers in the 1890s slept together in precinct houses. Did they treat it like the fire department back then? They did, basically. And, and it, it's interesting because um, if you do the math of the uh, number of hours they were required to report, they reported 110 hours out of 168 hours in the week. I mean, they slept... Basically, one quarter of the force uh, slept in the uh, precinct house, and that was so that they would be available in case of riots. I mean, that's the era of uh, unbelievable poverty of uh, you know the anarchists, uh, of the rising labor union movement, and these cops were on reserve in case they needed to be called out. You described New York City in the 1890s as a hard drinking town, but Roosevelt put a cork on drinking on Sundays in honor of the Sabbath. That didn't go over so well. No, that was, uh, you know, Roosevelt's first six weeks, two months in office went unbelievably well. Between, he stood up to, I mean, police officers ruled the streets, and a lot of them were indeed bullies, and uh, and. Uh, Roosevelt stood up to them. Here's this five foot nine inch Harvard educated guy who's just demanding respect and politeness and a change of behavior. And at first, he was unbelievably popular, and the Midnight Rambles helped his popularity. But then, about two months in, he uh, decided one of the first laws that he would absolutely enforce would be the uh, no uh, Sunday saloon law. Basically, you, saloons weren't allowed to open on Sundays in honor of the Sabbath. And Roosevelt decided that he would have the force, uh, <laughs> and it, it just it caused resent. He had even once admitted that 95% of, of New York population was opposed to that kind of uh, prohibition. And but this he, was in the summertime, too, right, when people wanted to go out and yeah, drink. It was hot. Is, 
It was June, July, and August. The New Yorkers, they just at first thought he was just uh, mouthing the same pieties that previous commissioners you know, did. And basically the tradition was the cops took a bribe and people came in at the side door. The front door of the saloon was closed. There were 10,000 saloons in New York City at the time. And uh, they had side doors up the block, and you just quietly walked in there. And, and Sunday was actually the biggest volume day for the bartender. So uh, this was huge. The Roosevelt was going to shut, and he, he fought right through, and New Yorkers just fled. I mean, the, the newspapers had a field day counting the number of people on the ferry boats going to Jersey, going to Coney Island. Um, it was brutal. What's the story behind saloon owners converting their establishments to hotels? Well, so what happens is Roosevelt's crackdown against all odds succeeds, and no one really expected that. And uh, so now New Yorkers can't drink on Sundays, and uh, the Republican Party winds up winning uh, the election in the fall, and they decide that they will make an even tougher crackdown. They like that this has happened, and um, they passed the Rain's Liquor Law, which is going to... um, Roosevelt had requested that um, saloons had to lock their front doors on Sundays and also had to open their curtains so the policeman could just walk by and look in and make sure nobody was in there. And Roosevelt got both those things passed. The only problem was they also had in the Rains Liquor Law that hotels with 10 rooms or more would be allowed to serve uh, drinks uh, basically 24-7, I mean all seven days of the week, including Sunday, to guests uh, so long as they ate a meal. And at first, nobody, I mean, the first, it's kind of wild, the first week or two of the headlines uh, after the law goes into effect, everyone thinks that this is going to be even tougher and New York's going to be even drier. But what winds up happening is saloon owners convert their saloons over into Rain's Law hotels. And the corrupt Tammany building inspectors, they don't care what the rooms are like. And some of the, you know, 10 rooms, some are in a cold bin. Some are in the attic. Only a midget could stand up in them. But the Tammany inspectors approve everything. And uh, 1,000 saloons converted over to Rain's Law Hotels, and they could now serve liquor, you know, around the clock. And they also offered 10 beds to any couple got a little drunk and wanted to wander up the stairs. Uh, there were convenient, cheap beds, and prostitutes used those, those beds as well. Before Teddy Roosevelt, there was another guy in New York City who launched a salvo against the city's indiscretions, a man by the name of Charles Parkhurst. Who was he? Charles Parkhurst, Reverend Parkhurst of Madison Square Presbyterian, um, was a crusader for reform. He, he basically, in 1892, wanted—he uh, gave a sermon— that uh, described all the uh, sin and iniquity in New York City and the corruption in Tammany and the corruption in the police force and the brothels and gambling joints. But the one problem from Parkhurst was he had never witnessed it himself. And the uh, Tammany uh, had the nerve to actually uh, bring libel charges against, against Parkhurst. So Parkhurst's defense was he hired a detective named Charlie Gardner, and they went out on what was basically a sin tour of New York City. And Parkhurst saw things he couldn't believe. He wound up going to, for instance, uh, Golden Rule Pleasure Club. He wound up going to, which was a a transvestite brothel. Uh, He didn't last long in there. Uh, He wound up uh, seeing a uh, uh, French circus, which is basically uh, sexual acrobatics, uh, usually with an oral sex part of it, and the word French comes, throw French in there. 
Uh, he saw all kinds of things, and then he was able to get back up on the pulpit and detail all his charges. And this led to the, the closing of, of several brothels and uh, eventually charges against uh, various police captains. And the, the whole thing, the whole movement, I mean, it's a long story, but it snowballed so that eventually there became uh, a Lexow Commission hearings that ran 5,000 pages of detailed testimony of just unbelievable corruption in the city and in the police department. Did he work closely with Roosevelt during Roosevelt's tenure as police commissioner? I think Parkhurst would have liked to work more closely with Roosevelt, but uh, Roosevelt kept him a little at arm's length. He thought at first that Parkhurst's um, expectations were going to be unrealistic. Um, at one point, though, uh, uh, how's it go? He said that uh, that he, he, he urged his, his parishioners to... Uh, to put their faith in Theodore Roosevelt and the Lord. And the Washington Post acidly commented, uh, we doubt that Mr. Roosevelt will agree to this division of responsibility. What about the political cartoonists of the day? Were they having a field day with all of this stuff? Oh, it was great. I love it because it's pre-photographs for the most part. I mean, they could throw photographs in the Sunday papers, but the the dailies were, were, you know, and drawings. And and they had just mastered the art of it. I mean, uh, J.P. Morgan is portrayed with the most enormous nose, you know, and Roosevelt basically becomes all teeth and eyeglasses after a while. And, uh, yeah, yeah, they completely, uh, they, at one point, you know, Roosevelt's cracking down on streetwalkers so aggressively that, um, you know, uh, some innocent women, uh, seem to have been arrested. Roosevelt would say they weren't innocent, but some, some innocent women were arrested. And so the, uh, the New York world puts on its front page, a picture of the, uh, of a Roosevelt policeman arresting the Statue of Liberty for being an unaccompanied female out at night. Your your book your book includes a was he or wasn't he story about Roosevelt. Was he or wasn't he at a drunken bachelor party with a naked belly dancer? Right. You know, I like leaving it as a was he or wasn't he. I mean, the book does actually answer the question, but the reason the chapter starts that way is because um, Jacob Reese heard that rumor going through the police department that night, and he seemed a reliable source for the rumor, and then, you know, the reader will find out by the end of the chapter whether or not Roosevelt was there. Did Roosevelt's actions as police commissioner hurt him politically among New Yorkers later in his career? Oh, my God. They... they they really did hurt him politically, and uh, he never he never won uh, the majority of the vote in a New York City election again. Now, in, in his defense, I mean, even when he won for governor, he didn't win New York City. And when he won for vice president and then for president, he didn't win New York City. But uh, in his defense, New York City was a Democratic stronghold. It was Tammany Hall, but uh, he did not win. You begin and you end the book talking about a statue of the Roman goddess Diana that was perched atop Madison Square Garden at the time. Why is that statue significant to the story? It's significant because I think it sets it sets a tone. Um, Stanford White paid for the statue of the goddess Diana, and and she was basically a you know a maiden huntress, but he clearly encouraged his friend the sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens to portray a pubescent nude female. And there she is. I mean, this is the highest point in Midtown. This is kind of, I mean, I think Jay Leno once joked that the Statue of Liberty is America's hood ornament. But uh, basically, Diana was New York City's hood ornament in, in Midtown. Uh, she she just loomed over all the buildings, but she was a, the body of a 16-year-old nude girl. And this was a city that had more uh, prostitution than any other city in the United States, and a lot of it happened to be fairly young women. So it was a kind of 
insider's joke almost about what was available in New York City. How would you compare Roosevelt's crackdown on the city's indecencies to, say, Rudy Giuliani's push to shutter porn shops and strip joints? Uh, I think Roosevelt's was just so much more ambitious. I mean, uh, not to take away from Giuliani's, but uh, but that was kind of a, a, a small effort compared. I mean, uh, this was the hard, the, an incredible hard-drinking town, and then for him to shut down uh, the saloon on Sunday, for him to go after all the brothels and all the streetwalkers, uh, I just it just was far more ambitious, I think, and far more in your face, far more combative. This book, Richard, enormously detailed. How'd you go about your research? How long did it take you? Well, it did take me five years. I, I won't deny that some of that could be, uh, you know, counted up to, <laughs> I don't know, wasting time, emotional drawbacks, whatever. But uh, I love research, and I found uh, a couple of documents that I still can't get over. That you know, trial transcripts, five, four thousand page trial transcript of the trial of a police captain accused of not shutting brothels, and just about every other page of this is a slice of life of either a brothel madam interact, interacting with a cop or, or uh, um, you know, just getting, getting beer from the corner saloon into the house. It's just such amazing stuff. And also the newspapers, there were too many of them almost. The 1890s uh, was just in uh, glory days of, the, of New York News, New York dailies. And uh, I couldn't stop myself. I started with just the New York Times, realized that was a puny 10,000 circulation paper at the time. And uh, then I got addicted to the New York World, which is really, uh, it was Pulitzer's paper, but it's, uh, there's some Murdoch overtones. I mean, they just had way too much fun writing up and twisting the knife on people. And, uh, and then you got the Herald Sun and the Tribune and then the evening papers. And I just couldn't stop. So I kept, uh, kept picking more papers to, to, for each incident, and it just added up. The book is Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's Doomed Quest to Clean Up Sin-Loving New York. Richard Zacks, thanks so much. Hey, thank you. Island of Vice is out now from Doubleday. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.